So 3 John, we'll start reading at verse 1 through 14. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask you to apply it to our hearts, to our minds, and that we might live in obedience to it, that we might look for areas in which we are not living in conformity to it and change our behavior. We ask you, Father, to have your Holy Spirit do that for us, for the building up of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, most everyone was probably here last week, and so we did introduce 2nd and 3rd John and speak about the similarities between the two books, and so I'll go through it fairly quickly. Uh, the books are remarkably similar in structure, um, and so there is this greeting, and each of them start, starts with the elder, with John introducing himself by that uh, term, and then he uses truth repeatedly uh, five times in 2nd John, four times in this book. He uses the phrases love in the truth, walk in the truth, and in both greetings, he uh, commends them to rejoice greatly. So this is kind of indicative of the same person writing these books, having the same thoughts towards them. The farewells also are practically identical. Uh, he references many things to write, but not with paper or pen and ink, that he wants to speak face-to-face -face with them instead, and then he gives greetings to family and friends. And even in the content, the main content of the letter, there are... Uh, remarkable similarities. Each is structured with this three parts. First, he introduces a standard, and this standard is then what he will comment on in the remaining sections. And so in the middle, he introduces a villain, and then he introduces how to oppose that villain, what you are to do that is different from what he's saying the villain does. Now, Last week, I had that uh, word picture on the back that showed you the similarities between the books of 2nd and 3rd John, 
as well as the dissimilarities. They were highlighted in different colors. So last week was a lot about doctrine. He was attempting to educate the elect lady on doctrine such that she would then live in obedience to that doctrine, that she would extend hospitality, continue to do that, but not extend hospitality to heretics, to give them a base of operations in her community, in her church. And here, he's reaching out to Gaius, and he really doesn't talk about doctrine in that way because he doesn't have any fault with Gaius. If anything, he would obviously have fault with this other man that he is opposing, that is opposing them. But here, he speaks of the words that were highlighted were brethren, focusing on this network of believers that he's commending Gaius for supporting and encouraging him to continue to support despite this other man who is opposing the extension of that hospitality. Now, in addition to the similarities, the many similarities and the small dissimilarity I introduced last week, I wanted to just point out some that are really obvious and some that maybe aren't so obvious. First, in 2 John, he's writing to a woman. Here, he's writing to a man. That is probably pretty helpful to understand how, how then John writes to these different people, different genders. I believe in 2 John, you know he's writing to a layperson because he's writing to this lady. She's not going to be an officer or an authority in the church. And yet here, he's writing to Gaius. He's writing to a man. And later we'll get into more details, but he appears to be writing to a man in authority, uh, probably even an elder. The third one, in the second uh, John letter, he does not refer to the church. He omits mention of the church, but here he mentions the church several times. And so we're talking about a broader perspective, at least that he's engaging on this issue is related to. And in 2 John, he condemns hospitality when it's extended to heretics, and yet here he commends hospitality to the faithful. So we have to be discriminating in who we extend hospitality to. So the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And so last week we talked about the who, what, when, where, why questions that you really ought to ask when you're reading Scripture. Who is this man? Who is Gaius? Now, it's a common name. It's a very common name. And so you can't hope to pin this name just by the virtue of the name to anybody else that's mentioned by that name in Scripture unless you have other evidence to support that. So there's a lot of a thought given to that, a lot of commentaries devote interest to this, but I don't know that it's that important. We can't really tie him to anybody else in the New Testament that identifies by that name, not, fit, not uh, in a firm way anyway. But context tells us the character of this man. And so I would uh, suggest to you that there are at least five things that we can figure out of Gaius's character based on what this letter says. First, Gaius is a man of faith and faithful service in the community, in this church that he's in. In verse 3 and verse 5, he is commended for ministering to the brethren. And some he didn't even know. These are just strangers. And yet these people have come back to John and reported about this, this man Gaius, who is very hospitable to the people in his community. And yet he doesn't receive the rebuke like the elect lady did. And so he's obviously discriminating in the way he's extending hospitality. He's attempting to serve God through this hospitality ultimately. A second thing is that he's probably a man of some means. It isn't everybody that can put up people that are traveling. 
You're going to provide them lodging. You're going to feed them for the few days that they're with you. You're most likely going to then provide them with material goods to sustain them until they need to get somewhere else. Now, he could be doing this with the aid of his church, hopefully, but at least it shows that he is a man that's devoting his property to serving the church. He's a man of means, and yet they're devoted to God's service. Third, and this is uh, somewhat tenuous perhaps, but the second verse reads, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So it's thought because John emphasizes Gaius' health that he's concerned about it. So whether this is a chronic illness that Gaius might be suffering or whether it's some recent temporary thing, it's thought that he may have been suffering some type of a sickness. And that kind of also folds into who we might think he is and where he was. So the fourth element is that he obviously also has some authority in the area, in that church. It's why it's likely that he is an elder. He is, I would say, also somewhat of a courageous leader because he is implicitly opposing this other man, Demetrius, who is obviously a man of strong character, who is tossing people out of the church for extending hospitality against his wishes. And so he's this autocratic man in the church that Gaius is obviously not in league with, not, not uh, working consistently with. Fifth, he's a man of influence. John is entrusting him with very personal insights concerning Demetrius. We don't know if this is widespread common knowledge, but John is sharing his personal views with Gaius of this man, Demetrius, who is likely in the same church as Gaius or at least in a church nearby. So you don't, as an elder, entrust that type of knowledge to someone that you don't know is able to keep a secret. He's a man of integrity. So this Gaius can be trusted with this information. Now, John is very outspoken in his criticism of Demetrius, and a lot of it was very obvious. And yet, you might think, is it appropriate for an elder, an apostle even, to be speaking this openly in this letter to Gaius? I think just by the fact that he has done so makes you realize and accept the fact that it must be appropriate for him to, to have done so. We can't always make such assumptions, but I think here it would be appropriate for us to do that. So, consistent then with this view of Gaius, it would seem logical then that he is an elder. We just don't know exactly where he's an elder, whether he's in the same church as Demetrius or whether he's in a different church, maybe a neighboring church that's far enough to weigh, away to where this, this uh, other fellow that, that John wants uh, Gaius to put up, um, they're far enough apart to where he isn't going to be hassled by John, perhaps. But you can kind of take it either way. In verse 9, when John writes, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes opposed them. What does he mean? when he says, I wrote to the church. Is it Gaius's church? Is that why the definite article is there, the, I wrote to the church? He could have said, I wrote to your church, but we don't know. So it could have been Gaius's church. It could have been just Demetrius's church that's in mind, Diotrephes' church, rather, and yet we just don't know. It, but we know that 
John is bringing this to mind with Gaius because obviously Gaius would know this other man, Diotrephes. He would know that, that and, and I think John is also trying to assure Gaius that he has John's backing if he needs to oppose the actions or thoughts of this man, Diotrephes. So Gaius, we know these various character attributes, but I presumed courage. I don't know if you noticed that. He is a man of authority, and yet I presume that he will act courageously in opposing this man, Diotrephes, who is arrogant. So we don't know that, though. It's just the hope, and I believe that's what John is encouraging Gaius to do, oppose this man, oppose, oppose such people who are doing wrong in the church. Now, another thing about Gaius, though, that comes up in a little bit is that I believe John knew him personally. Verse 2, beloved, I pray that you may prosper. He uses the word beloved four times in this letter. He refers to Gaius as beloved four times. Now, John doesn't toss that word around a lot. In the first letter of John, five chapters, 105 verses, he used it six times. And so here he uses it four, far, far fewer verses. Didn't use it with the lady, didn't use it in the writing of Revelation, not in respect to people, didn't use it in the writing of the gospel. And so he's identifying this Gaius as someone who's beloved to him. And look at verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. John is possessive of this man. He was perhaps instrumental in leading him to salvation. Or if not that, at least growing him up in the faith. He's known him for a while. He loves him and he trusts them. Whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Truth, truth, truth. We talked about that last week, but I didn't really talk about it in depth. And I want to talk to you about this in some greater depth. Truth. Think about this. When we write, or when you hear, uh, you young people who have never written a letter, um, there is the practice at the end of a letter, or used to be, of writing, yours truly, and then you sign your name. Or sincerely, sign your name. When someone writes, yours truly, what do they mean? What is meant by the word true? That's the root, yours truly. Now, when he says that he loves Gaius in truth, is that a way of him telling Gaius that this is really, really, really true? I really, really, really love you. Don't doubt it. No, this word in the context doesn't mean that at all. It is in truth that John loves Gaius. Think of truth more as a shared reality that John and Gaius are in. They are in this shared reality where they share a common bond, and that common bond is truth. The truth is in us, and we also abide in that truth. And therefore, when we are in that truth, we walk in the truth, we work in the truth, we labor in the truth, all of it is done in this reality, in this common bond that we have together. In the world, 
you will have lies. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of lies. The world is filled with lies. I mean, it is really disheartening sometimes uh, to read books that aren't from a Christian perspective because they are just filled with lies that they present as facts. They're only the latest theory, but yet they present them as facts until a new theory comes along to displace them, and then they will relate that theory as fact. That's the way the world works. It's just one theory after the next that's presented as fact. We might think, okay, well, they're not intentionally trying to fool us. But I don't know that you can always believe that. I think sometimes they are intentionally trying to fool us. The world wants you to believe their lies. They have some angle. They have some advantage to having you believe lies. But we abide in truth. We are said to be seated in the heavenlies with Christ. We are abiding with truth, in truth. And we have God's truth abiding in us. So don't think of this word truth as being something simple, something that even you can relate to in your normal way of thinking about truth and fiction. It's not. I mean, it's so much stronger, so much more powerful. It defines your reality, even if you don't acknowledge it, even if you don't know it and enjoy it. It defines the reality for people that are truly Christians, that they are in the truth and the truth is in them. It is such a powerful thing, such a powerful thing. Leviticus 19, oh, I don't need to, I have it here. Leviticus 19.35 said this, You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. So those were the rules laid down by Moses out in the desert. And yet here, hundreds of years later, is what God writes in Micah. Micah 6, verse 11. Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? So God's own people were indulging in cheating others through dishonesty, through lies, hiding the truth. They don't want the truth to be visible to whoever they're buying or selling with. They want to cheat them. When I was young, some of you know, you can cover your children's ears, but some of you know I grew up in a, uh, as an unchristian, as a pagan, and I entered into a drug culture. I mean, it was just the culture that existed in the mid-'70s where I was from. And so my older brothers did drugs, my older sister did drugs, I did drugs, my friends all did drugs. I was just a druggie. And uh, not everybody did in my town, but still, I, that was my subculture, definitely. And I can remember the first time going with my friend, and you would just, you want some marijuana? Someone always knows, hey, you know who's selling? Hey, you know who's selling? They'll give you directions, you drive off to some house. Now, I lived in a rural area, so you just drive off to some house. You've never been there before, but you knock on the door, tap, tap, tap. Hey, I heard you have some of this for sale. They don't know you, and yet they're then willing to open their door and greet you and sell you marijuana. And so I remember the first time I did this with my one friend where he pulled out his own scale. 
his little one-ounce scale to measure the fact that he was buying one ounce of marijuana. I'm thinking, we're in on the porch of some stranger's home, and you're going to distrust him? You know, I thought, ooh, I, I didn't think my friend was that wise. But perhaps he'd been ripped off in the prior purchase, and so he had paid for an ounce and didn't get a full ounce. Later when I went into the service, I'm still into drugs, and it was still, still the case that if you didn't want to be cheated, you carried your own scale that you knew was accurate. Little one-ounce scale. It's almost like a protractor. You just whip it out, hang the bag on it, and you measure it. That was what everybody did. And so I didn't. I never had a scale. I probably got ripped off. I don't know. But I wasn't going to do that. I thought that was going a little bit too far with people that I either trusted or didn't know. Either way, it was not good. So the reason I bring all this up, because I really did jump from truth to telling you stories about drugs. <laughs> and so I want to knit them together. In this book, which I really find very interesting, it's called Measuring America. Let me read you a few things. This is kind of Eurocentric, but still I think it's very helpful. Where modern economics would alter the price... The usual practice before the 17th century was to change the size of the measure. And so you didn't alter price, you altered the size. Candy bar manufacturers do the same today because people associate a particular price with a particular candy. Less resentment is caused by shrinking the bar than increasing the price. Inevitably, variable measures offered irresistible opportunities for cheating. In 813, Charlemagne, newly crowned as emperor of most of Western Europe by the Pope, issued a famous edict which began, we desire that weights and measures should be equal and just everywhere. For nearly a thousand years thereafter, the goal of almost every French king could be expressed, one king, one faith, one weight. But in 1790, so this is um, almost a thousand years after Charlemagne's edict, in 1790, according to an authoritative estimate, France possessed 13 separate lengths for a foot, 18 for the L, which is kind of like a measurement of area fabric, and 24 for the bushel, a measure of volume. Now we know why. However much emperors and rulers might legislate for uniformity, the actual scales, yardsticks, and containers were held by city authorities and landed nobles. They were a source of such profit that no one gave them up unless forced to. As a result, control of weights and measures has always offered a good indication of who exercised day-to-day -day authority. So what they're saying is that Though the king might want official weights and measures, the people under him that stand to make a lot of money by cheating did not want standard weights and measures. And so it took a long, long time to have them come into practical use. And the government might want it, but they're usually the ones also that are faulted with not providing it because their legislation is also affected by lobbyists saying that they want to muddy the waters relative to these. So it's hard to get consistency out of government authorities. So, now, I want to knit these two together in an interesting way, I hope. Christians who have the truth in them, truth, these absolutes, cannot be cheated. You cannot be cheated unless you are led astray. 
unless you don't believe these standards that God has given you. Because, see, there are two things that are really phenomenal. God has implanted a lie detector in every one of His children. The Holy Spirit is in you if you believe. And the Holy Spirit leads you into truth and convicts you of unrighteousness, which you can also consider untruth. So the Holy Spirit is a lie detector living in you that if only you would heed Him, He will guide you aright. But we don't always heed the Holy Spirit because we don't always want to obey. We always don't want to walk in the truth. Secondly, He has given us a perfect ruler by which to measure all of the things we come into contact with in this world. He's given us His Word. We have His Word that we must compare everything to. This is the ruler. This is unchanging. And yet everything you face in the world is constantly changing, one theory after another, falling away. And yet, if you adhere to God's Word, you will have that absolute measure by which you can be sure of what it is that you're assessing, what it is that people are trying to convince you of. Now we're coming into the heart of the letter in verse 5, and he says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. So John had commended Gaius already for his hospitality, and now he introduces the standard, already acknowledging that Gaius has met it. And so now he raises the standard, saying that you have borne witness of it before your church. We know you live by this standard. Now, what's next is very helpful to us as Christians. We have in verses 6 through 8 this. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. So he's beginning to say how it is that Gaius should treat these people who are on a missions trip. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So there are three points here. First, believers... Gaius, these believers that are assisting others in missionary work, they are to send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, your service to that missionary is as if you are serving God directly. Second point, they are not to be supported by the unsaved, by the Gentiles, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And third, the believers are to receive them to become fellow workers for the truth. So we that assist in any missions work are then fellow workers in the truth. We are as if we are on that missions trip. We can earn the treasure, the rewards that those missionaries are. Now, these, I believe, are pretty clear principles by which we should assess our support of missions. But how do we do against them. The first one, we're to send them forth in a manner worthy of God. So are we really serving missionaries, supporting missionaries like they are God themselves? And you know what I'm saying. I'm not saying it in a bad way, but I'm saying that we must honor them. They are on a journey for God, sacrificing a lot. And yet, 
Sometimes we don't support them very effectively because I think many of you have probably at least heard some stories from missionaries that are just sad. Stuff that missionaries received from the states while they're overseas. Stuff that you would throw away here at home if you had it in your home. And yet they think to themselves, well-meaning people here in this country think to themselves, well, I can't use it, but maybe the missionaries can. And so they pack it all up in a box and ship it off. Used tea bags, old dirty rags that haven't even been washed. I mean, these are stories from history where people think they're serving God, think they're serving the church, think they're helping his people out by doing th something that is so crass. I don't think missionaries tend to share those stories because they don't want to do that. They don't want to let you know that that's how some people think about them. So instead, we ought to give missionaries our best, not our, not our cast-offs, not our excess. So when we gather stuff for uh, being sent as we do each November, December, think about that. Think about, would I want to receive this? Is this something that is worthy of God? Missionaries are to take nothing from the Gentiles, nothing from the Gentiles. Now, cults especially violate this. The Moonies, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Hare Krishnas, they want money from you. We had this one Jehovah's Witness, this elderly man that would come to our house when I was a kid all the time, and my mom would always end up giving him money for these little tracts and books that he would push upon her. He would not leave anything with us unless he got like a penny or more. And he needed money. He wanted money from this. In part, he wanted you to value it, but he also is making money from the very people that he's trying to convince of the Jehovah's Witnesses way. And the Moonies have terms for it. I mean, they, they intentionally would do this. They would seek people to give them money, to deceive them in ways. But churches do it too. And I believe we have many churches in our day doing stuff like this, taking money from the Gentiles in order to support their churches, their programs. The seeker-sensitive churches grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Because they are ministering to the lost in their very churches on Sundays, bringing them in, taking their money, and yet not really ever holding them accountable to living a life that is honorable to God, not truly sharing the gospel with them and converting them. They're just making them comfortable in their sin. This is in direct violation of this scripture. These are churches generating building programs by perpetuating cultural Christianity. I know of a church right here in town, a huge uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran church that has doubled and tripled its buildings over the last 15 years in large part because their pews are filled with unbelievers and they dare not share the truth of the gospel with them. I know people in that church. They went to a small group. Not one couple in the small group could find any New Testament book, let alone expound upon it. Yet that is supposedly where the wisdom from this church is going to be manifested in these small groups without any shepherds to lead them. They're just commanded, go form a small group with people in your neighborhood and explore the Word of God. And yet there's nobody to lead them in these studies. It's just sad. And yet it's a direct violation of what they ought to be doing. Third, believers are to receive them 
in their homes. Now, I believe our culture is fast transitioning. I've seen it. When, when I joined as an elder just, what, 12, 13 years ago, and Phil and I would go off to these PCA meetings, you were often, I wouldn't say always, but you were often encouraged to try to be put up in someone's home. They could put you up, give you a room and a bed, uh, feed you a meal, send you off to your meeting. I believe that's fading fairly quickly. It, it just goes against our isolationist, value our privacy above everything culture. I don't even think it's money directed mostly. It's just, I don't really want to be bothered with having to talk to you. And frankly, I don't think you really want me coming into your home. And then you have to kind of entertain me. And so we are fading away from that. And that's why I think as a, as a direct response to this message, and I know we all practice hospitality a lot, but I've been somewhat convicted. I, I, I don't stay here often and fellowship with you all. You all fellowship a lot here. And yet I'm often just kind of seeking my own space, my own time. And I think that selfishness at its core. I don't want to spend time with people that I love, that I think love me. And it's sad. Yet I think it's a reflection of this time. It's a reflection of the culture we're a product of. We must fight against it. We must fight against it in order to overcome it. Love one another. The mark of the early church was love. Burying dead bodies was a mark. Loving one another was another mark. And serving in your community. These were marks of the early church, and we need to be marks of our church as well. I believe that this, this reluctance to be hospitable towards people is even penetrating through to families where even when families come and go from town and visit others, you still expect to kind of be put up in a hotel, not in a home. Um, you just don't want the inconvenience of dealing with this. Um, and yet, I think we ought to. It, it, this is not a cultural thing we, that we can adapt to. We must overcome the tendency. So now, in our next section, this is entering into the section where we introduce the villain at verse 9. I wrote to the church... But Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So there are six things I want to walk through here that Diotrephes has done that ought not to have been done. First... He loves to have the preeminence among them. So you can see there that he's a very proud man, not selfless at all. He does not receive us. And now here John is speaking of himself and authorities that exist, that exist outside of Diotrephes' sphere of authority. He is threatened by them. He's rebellious towards them. He doesn't want to have any, uh, 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 any uh, opportunity to share with them. He doesn't want them in his business, and he's not... He, he, by uh, contrast, I think he's not saying he's not going to get in their business because we see that he gets in the business of the people in his own church. So it's a one-sided thing. He just refuses to be under authority. Prating against us with malicious words, slander. These are most likely untrue. He's just telling stories. He himself does not receive the brethren, so he's hard-hearted. He refuses to act in a hospitable way, in a Christian way. He forbids those who wish to. Now he's overbearing. Not only am I not going to support them, you're not allowed to either. Nor are you, nor are you, nor are you. And 
He put them out of the church if they disobeyed him. Now, in the last letter, last week, we talked about John's advice to this lady. This was in a different context. He's counseling her not to put up heretics in her home. These are not heretics. There is no question of whether this is consistent with Christian doctrine or inconsistent. He's just not behaving in a manner consistent as a Christian. John is not even challenging Diotrephes' doctrine. He's challenging his behavior. He's not behaving like a Christian. And yet John, in speaking with the elect lady, implored her and then advised her not to put up people in her home. But did he do any of these things or even threaten to? No. He treated the woman with respect. She deserved it. Yet this man, Diotrephes, is not treating people with respect. So then John, in verse 10, says, If I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. And so he does intend to address this if he can come. And so some think that this may be an official church function, a commission from Presbytery, a type of thing that occurred in Acts 15 with resolving the question, the Jerusalem Council it's called. We don't know, but yet that there, John is saying, if I come, I will deal with this. This man must be dealt with. Elders must hold other elders accountable. Um, once I told the story, I forget how recently, but when I was a, I'd been a Christian about three years or so. I was in Southern California. I was a member of an OPC church in Garden Grove. And there were various OPC churches that got together for a picnic. And uh, they take their volleyball so seriously. It's really like a sacrament in the OPC. And there was a man playing, and he was so verbally abusive. I, I was just really shocked. I thought, how can this man be at a church picnic behaving this way? And I later learned he was an OPC pastor. He was an OPC elder, teaching elder. I was, I was, I mean, I wanted to leave the church, in all honesty. I mean, I came away from that picnic disheartened, disenchanted. I thought, you know, I thought the OPC was great until that day. And I went to my elder, and I said, did you see how that man behaved? And he just, he didn't defend him, of course, but he just said that there really wasn't anything that they could do about it, that he personally could or would do about it. And I thought, wow, that's horrible, that you're not going to do anything about this jerk of a man who is in a pulpit in one of your churches that doesn't deserve to be. I mean, he treated his own children in a verbally abusive way. He treated the other people that he's playing volleyball with in a verbal... And it wasn't joking. Like, like when John and I were bumping chests down at the Guernseys a few weeks ago. It wasn't joking at all. I mean, this guy was serious. He was deadly serious. And I was deeply offended. But that is the type of stuff that elders must address with other elders. You can't let that go. Can you imagine how abusive he was towards his sheep in his church? I mean, if he's that abusive at a church picnic, you know that he's more than that abusive in his own church, in his own home. So next we come to opposing the villain. And so let me read verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So now, see, he's just ended this portion about Diotrephes, and he shared all these things that Diotrephes was doing wrong. Yet in no instance did he refer to him like he had referred to the uh, villain in 2 John as uh, deceivers and antichrists. 
He wasn't accusing Diotrephes of heresy. He was just a jerk. And so he pointed out aspects of Diotrephes' character that were far below par in any Christian, let alone a leader of the church. And yet then he says this. So he's just saying, Gaius, dot one, dot two, feel free to connect them. And I believe that's what he's saying. He's just saying that you'll have to deal with jerks like this, not only in the church, but even in the pulpits. And yet, we have to deal with it in God's timing, in God's way, through God's rules. And so he's, I think, implicitly calling upon him for patience in this. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now, John cannot act unilaterally in this. Even as an apostle, he doesn't do that because the apostles were building the church. They need the church to function after they are dead and gone. He did not uh, forbid that elect lady from doing things in the previous letter. He's teaching them to recognize what is good, to go against what is evil. In a commentary by a man named I. Howard Marshall, I read this. It was concerning the epistles of John in this text. It is not Christian to refrain from exercising legitimate authority when there is need to do so. The modern church is perhaps too reluctant in exercising brotherly admonition and even discipline when it is required. We all know this to be true. And so we all know that this needs to change in order for God's church to grow and honor him. Demetrius had a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So now he introduces this man, Demetrius, that is perhaps the man who brought the letter. And so he is the one who is seeking support, most likely, from Gaius on this, on this path that he's on. We don't know exactly the timing of things when uh, Diotrephes opposed him. Did that set this man back, Demetrius, back in his journey, perhaps? But yet we know now that he is being encouraged to support this man, Demetrius. He has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness. He gives three evidences. From all, which means the man has a good reputation. From the truth itself, meaning if you spend any time with him, you'll see that this man is godly. And three, we bear witness, and you know our testimony is true. We would not lead you astray. So he gives three evidences that Gaius ought to support this man, Demetrius. And so then he closes the letter and seeks to uh, extend this greeting. I had many things to write, but I do not wish. Again, we talked about the greeting at the beginning. It's very similar to the farewell is very similar to that from Second John. And we know that God grants us all opportunities to do the right thing when it comes to missions. We know people personally. We've had many people through our church. And so we really ought to do what it is that we are called to do in this letter, send on in a manner worthy of God, that we support them. Supporting our brethren will always involve sacrifice, time, money, our privacy, uh, the difficulty of preparing our home, dealing with the aftermath of having our home used by guests, uh, these are just all the price we pay in order to be in this network in God's kingdom. And so let us support our missionaries in a manner worthy of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for the fact that you rely upon us, your church, your people, your children, to serve one another, to serve you in your kingdom. We ask you to give us uh, minds which will uh, discriminate, differentiate, especially on the doctrine that we will understand and uh, be able to think through whether the missions that are asking for our support truly do support you in the way in which your word calls them to. And we pray for their success. Those that do, Lord, we pray that you would bless them, that we would bless them, that uh, you would make us a blessing to them, that their work would flourish, that they would be in the field, and that they would see the uh, harvest and harvest in that field. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to be with us now, to bless uh, this word to our minds, uh, guide us in applying it to our lives in the days and weeks ahead. We want to serve you and please you. We want to live our lives in obedience to your word. We ask you, Lord, to make it so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.